Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 2. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way of its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. 
and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Thank you, Vivian. Well, I want to welcome you to uh, the Parks Church. If you're new, um, this is what we do here at the Parks. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel. And just to recap, we've been in a section here in First Samuel known as the Ark Narrative. Uh, and what I mean by the Ark is the Ark of the Covenant. And we've been following uh, the movement of the Ark. And so I thought maybe uh, if you have an ESV Bible, I think this is the map that, that is in that. Um, if you could put that map up for me, Jim. Uh, this is the movement of that Ark that we have been following over the last three chapters, four, five, and now uh, six. And you can see Shiloh up in the upper right-hand corner. That is kind of the epicenter of Israel's worship um, that we, we talked, uh, especially early on in 1 Samuel. And you can see all of these places and then kind of the, the uh, little burst there. Yeah, that's where the ark got taken, right, in the center. And you followed last week the ark's movement uh, by the Philistines who captured uh, the ark from Israel and its movement through their, really their big or main cities, just trying to figure out what to do with the ark. Like it, it, it was having these, these incredible ramifications and, and plagues, if you will, going through each city. So they were like, just keep passing it on to the next city. And uh, you see that movement all the way until we get back to uh, Beth Shemesh, which is uh, down here and where we'll pick up. Uh, today And for the last two weeks, we have highlighted or examined, as this ark has moved around, uh, the glory of God. And uh, I know that's a term used a lot in church. I know that's a, a, a word that maybe even too easily sometimes flows off of our lips. But we've been looking uh, really in-depth at what is the glory of God. And really from two places we've seen it. In Israel, with the Israelites, right, taking the ark or the presence of God after they have just been defeated in battle, thinking that they could objectify God and bringing him and just going, oh yeah, we forgot to bring in the ark. Let's bring in the ark and then we'll defeat the Philistines. And what happened? They suffered a massive blow uh, militarily. And then also the greatest blow, the Ark of the Covenant, was taken by the Philistines. Then last week we pivoted over to uh, the Philistines, a pagan nation, uh, a rival actually to the Israelites. And we see them um, understand the power of the Israelite God in a whole new way. They thought they had captured God and they put him in their trophy case under their God, Dagon. And uh, we see them really defying God. And here's what we learned last week was that the defiance to God can appear to be acceptable for a moment. 
right? How were they able to handle the ark of God and bring it into their camp and actually sit it in Dagon's temple? Like, why didn't God just immediately when they touched it strike them all dead? It can seem like in a moment that, that this defiance to God is allowed, but what we learned last week that it always gives way. It always gives way to the victory and glory of God. We've also learned over the last two chapters is that God will be glorified. God will be glorified and his glory will not be allowed to be objectified by his people or his enemies. And so now we come to chapter 6 where God's glory is still on display, but the ark is, as Vivian read, being returned back to the Israelites. So let me sum up um, that very long chapter that Vivian just read like this. The ark is carried off. It's held in captive in an enemy land. And God ends up showing up, overthrowing and undermining other gods, the gods of the Philistines, all on his own. Now that story, that little narrative that I just gave should sound familiar to you if you're a student of the Bible. In fact, it should sound familiar to you because we just sang a song about another story that that mirrors. And that story is the story of the Exodus. This story in 1 Samuel chapter 6 is a story patterned off of the Exodus story, right? And that, that story is God's people taken into captivity in the land of Egypt, right? And what happens to them? They are enslaved. It can seem that, 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 that the Egyptians are defying God and it's being allowed. But what happens? We know the story of Exodus, right? That God overthrows the gods of Egypt through the plagues and he delivers his people. He, he removes them from slavery and captivity, and what's funny about chapter 6, and really 4, 5, and 6, is that the Philistines, it seems, actually realize the parallel here between them and the Egyptians more than the Israelites do. It appears that the Philistines, this pagan nation, know Israel's history better than they do. Remember, you remember in chapter 4 where uh, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought in for the battle, and, and what are the Israelites doing? They're hooping and hollering, and, and uh, the Philistines are kind of trembling. They're going, wait a minute. A God has entered their camp, and they actually talk about Egypt in that moment. Look at, in, in uh, chapter uh, 6 this morning. If you think there's any question about this, look at verse 6, and we're going to go through it. But look at verse 6. Why should you, this is from the Philistines' perspective, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? I mean, they're going, let's not end up like Egypt, guys. We're seeing the similarities here, the plagues, right? The tumors and the mice, like they, they've got these bells and whistles going off. They're like, let's not harden our hearts. Let's just send it away. As one commentator says, there are echoes of the Exodus all over this chapter. Verse 3, the word send away. This is from the Philistines. Send away is nearly the same Hebrew language from Exodus 5.1 where Moses declares, let my people go. Nearly the same language. Verse 3, we're not even leaving that verse empty, right? Don't send away the ark empty, the Philistines say. This is where God would tell the Israelites, don't leave Egypt uh, empty. Leave with all the gold and take all the silver with you. The guilt offering mentioned from the Philistines is the reparation offering listed in Leviticus 5 and 6. This is incredible, these echoes, these, these shadows. And what happens through this story is that, just like in the Exodus story, the Egyptians and the Israelites saw God's power on display. And just like this story, the Philistines and the Israelites, again, 
are seeing God's power unmistakably on display. But why? Why all of these parallels? Why all of these uh, comparisons with the Exodus story? Kyle, why does that matter? Here's why that matters. Because the Exodus story is about God delivering his people. It was the Israelites' story. It defined their relationship. It defined who they were as a people and a nation. It showed them that they have a God, a covenant-keeping God, who personally rescued and delivered them. This is their story. And so they're seeing it play out again. Now I want to pause right there and make that statement again. With our New Testament, New Covenant lenses on. Christians, Christ followers. A God personally involving himself to rescue and form a people. Sound familiar? Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and giving of the Holy Spirit. A God personally involving himself to rescue and form a people. So let me be very clear this morning why all of these echoes in chapter 6, because God is working another exodus. God is working another exodus for the Israelites. Kyle, who's he working that exodus from? The Egyptians? Well, that, he already did that. The Philistines, we got it, the Philistines. Oh no. The exodus that God is working in chapter 6 is from the Israelites themselves. He's working a rescue from there. The things that we have seen, their hardness of heart, their complacency, their flippancy toward the things of God. God is working deliverance and salvation to his people again. And in these scenes, we see a God who is very serious first about his glory. A God who is not willing to sit back passively and let his glory be tarnished. A God who is not going to be passive about also watching his people implode. Do you not see the love of God? The grace of God, him pursuing his people, the Israelites? And so we're going to see a God who involves himself seemingly letting the Israelites win for a little while. Kind of appeared like that, right? This is what we, scholars call the humiliation. It seems like God is getting humiliated. But what do we ultimately see? And this is a biblical pattern. We always see from humiliation, exaltation. And that is the swing we are on this morning. We will see God all on his own bring the ark back to Israel. And so let's look at it. Verses 1 through 12, if you have your Bible or, or your notes open, we see the Philistines are working a plan for appeasement. That's really verses 1 through verse 12. They're trying to figure out how to appease this powerful God. Right? Propitiation would be the, kind of the theological term here, right? Like, how do we just kind of satisfy and get rid of this, right? To stop what's going on. And so they offer uh, a uh, guilt offering is what it says. And this kind of tips their hand, okay? This tips their hand because this is showing and acknowledging that they believe they did something against this God. And so what do they fill it with? Five golden mice and five golden tumors. And when she was reading that, I was like, I hope no one thinks that that sounds like a child's novel or story. Like, this was a very serious thing, all right? So they were taking kind of the, plague, the, the plagues that were happening in their nation, and they were creating out of the most valuable uh, commodity, if you will, images and going, we're, we're giving this back to you, right? 
We're giving, we realize what has happened. We're acknowledging in the highest fashion what God has given them, and they're giving it back. And the thought was this, that by giving back to God or giving glory to the Israelite God, that in turn he would lighten their affliction on them. Right? In these tumors, the word tumor here, it's an interesting word. Um, in the King James, if any of you have the KJV uh, handy, um, you would see in the other chapters when it happened in, in the Philistine camps that it translated it like the word hemorrhoids, which, yeah, okay, go there. But the Hebrew word actually means to be puffed up. Same word used biblically for pride. And so it really, God was addressing, going after, going, listen, you prideful people thinking that you can use me as a trophy, that I'm going to be in your trophy case. Here's, I'm going to show you what it looks like to be puffed up. And there were actually these tumors that happened on them. And so they're like, we're giving that puffing up right back, right? And so that's what you see happening here. And then they did something very interesting when they put the ark on these cows. Did you hear that when, when it was read? Look at it here. He put these arcs on cows, but not just any kinds of cows. They were milking cows. So the Philistines now are kind of doing this, what, what we call a, a, a cow test, okay? They put the ark on these milking cows because a milking cow who has calves, um, whenever they're released from the yoke, the idea would have been they're going to go straight back to their calves. They're going to return right back to where they come, came from. And so they, it, it literally says, look at it, and then we'll know here or at the end of verse 9, if it just happened to us by coincidence, if it was just coincidence, and something we've said a lot around here at the Parks Church is, by the way, with the kingdom of God, with our God, there is no such thing as coincidence, right? So they're putting God to the, the test here, and what happens? The cows do not return. And this for them shows that it is obvious, it proves that God's hand, without question, this Yahweh, God, he was absolutely against them. And so what does even a pagan nation's test against our God prove? That it is the hand of God against them. That it is God moving against them. That it is God's glory there. But now let's get into Israel. As the turn here happens in verses 13 through 16, Israel's response to seeing this ark, the ark, their ark, the ark of the covenant coming back. What do they do? And this is where we're going to land this morning. How do they respond? It says that they rejoice. They rejoice with burnt offerings, which I'll, I'll talk about the burnt offerings here in a sec. But does that seem like the proper response to you? And it's okay for you to say yes. You're like, I, this trick question, Kyle, like, I don't know how to answer you. Like, think about it. Like, they rejoice. They see it. And they're like, yes, it's, it's back. Because that's, if you just stop there, you're like, okay, like, this makes sense that that would be their response. And then verse 19, look at verse 19. This kind of catches us off guard. And he, that's God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck, I love it, it said some, and now it's going to be real specific. He struck 70 men of them. What a welcome party, right? Like, the ark's back. It's home. Or is it? Wait a minute. The presence of God, it was gone. Ichabod, it had exiled. It's back. We're rejoicing. And the best translation to verse 19 is this. 
is that it says that they, and the ESV doesn't capture this, it says that they looked in the ark. So when the ark came back, they were celebrating, they were, they were making offerings, they were, they were worshiping, and then some guys opened the lid, if you will, and looked in the ark, and God reminds them, wait a minute. Let's not have short-term memory and remember why my presence was exiled. And so the question they ask in verse 20 is the right question. It is, in fact, the ultimate question. And here it is. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So it took the death of 70 men for them to ask the right question, to get their attention, to go, wait a minute. Who can stand before God? Why did it cost them their lives that day, the Israelite lives that day? And, and in my opinion, it's, it has less to do with what they did, meaning peering into the ark. And rather, it had everything to do with what they didn't do when the ark arrived on that day. The answer to their question in verse 20 is, who can stand before the Lord? No one. No one can stand before this holy, glorious, perfect God. And if that is true, then what should their have res response should have been on that day? What would the, the response be? Save us. Rescue us. Repentance. Repentance. You see, Israel was excited to see the ark back, and I get that. But the return of it does not break them into repentance for why they lost the ark in the first place. You see this? Like on the surface, we're like, yeah, of course we'd rejoice. But that is not what God requires. We forgot the answer to verse 20. Who can stand before this holy and righteous God? Is it the Philistines and all their power? Is it Dagon? No, he's knocked that over. Is it, is, it, is it his people treating him like a commodity? They cannot stand. So who can stand before God? No one. No one can stand before this God. And here is a scary reality that we must come face to face with this morning. Is that we can be worshiping, sacrificing, celebrating God externally, all the while having a heart that is getting harder and harder in the midst of all the sacrifice and worship. I'm convinced that even the Philistines, in verse 6, they were, why, why should you harden your hearts? Like the Philistines are even being a little bit more sensitive to making sure they don't harden their hearts like Pharaoh. They're being more sensitive than God's people themselves, than the Israelites. Not seeing the ark go in and go, okay, how did we get into this mess in the first place? How, how, did, we, how did we mishandle the presence of God in the first place? And, and here, uh, one scholar points out that there are really two primary ways of hardening our hearts. Now hear me, the Philistines' hearts are hardened to the Lord. They're not his people. The Israelite, heart, Israelite hearts as well are hardening to the things of God. So that shows us there are two ways. One, rebellion. Rebellion. Hearts become hardened to the things of God, to God himself by rebellion. I think this is the one that we're all familiar with, right? That our hearts, as they run away from God, grow harder and colder to the things of God. The second one, though, maybe hits a little closer to home for us. Our hearts can grow cold and hard through religious practices 
disconnected from true repentance. That one should hit home. How can our hearts grow cold and hard? Through religious practices minus true repentance. Sacrificing, worshiping, offering, doing all the right things for God without ever having God himself break in and soften our hearts. And as we really examine Israel's worship on this day, when the ark came back in, if you really look at it, you might understand how shallow it actually was. You see, we get caught up in all these Bible words, right? Guilt offering, burnt offering. They meant something unique. When the ark came in, by them giving a burnt offering, essentially was them failing to recognize any wrongdoing, or excuse me, not offering a guilt offering, failed them recognizing any wrongdoing on their part. Instead, what did they do? Look at it in your text. They offered a burnt offering of sacrifices, which was associated with petition and praise. They skipped a step, right? I mean, again, even the Philistines got this one right, okay? They did a guilt offering. What were the people of God required in this moment to give? A guilt offering. And instead, they offer a burnt offering. And not only was that a picture, but also the sacrifices that they made. These two cows. It says that they they, they cut them up and made them as sacrifices. Those were female cows. That was against their own rules and regulations. Sacrifices unto the Lord were to be male. Flippancy. Convenience. Here they are. Let's, you know, this is what we have. This is what we'll give. So here at Beth Shemesh, we have the people of God making improper sacrifices, not even with just the wrong type of offering, illuminating that they still haven't seen that their own hearts were hard towards God and that they had failed to truly worship God from their side. Right? It, it, it baffles me that not one person says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, stop. Have we understood how we got here? Do we realize what got us to this point? Have we repented? Like not one person, we don't see that at all in the text. Instead, for Israel, they see the ark and start partying, worshiping, and making offerings. Now back to the Exodus story. It's very similar to when they took all the gold and they've been delivered. And what happens? What does Aaron fashion out of all that gold that they get? An image to represent God so that they can see him, right? The Israelites fail as they did then and do now here in chapter 6. They fail to realize this. Something must change. Something must change in our hearts, in our lives as a nation. And this is what God is trying to show them. Something must change. I'm trying to bring you back. I'm trying to deliver you. I'm trying to save you. Again, I'm trying to show you something must change. And maybe this morning, hear me, that is exactly what God is trying to communicate to you and to us. Something must change, church. And hear me, I'm not talking about mere behavior modification. Stop doing this and start doing this. But something must change at the deepest heart level 
of who we are. Of who we are individually and who we are corporately. Paul puts it like this in Romans 2. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Think about that. You who are judging people, yet you're doing the very thing that you're judging them against, right? Do you think you're going to escape God? No. We just said, who can stand before God? Who can escape him? No one. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? You want to do a, a fun word study this week. Look at how the Bible looks upon presumption. That would be fun. Go, yeah, just go do that. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? You can say it. It's okay. Repentance. His kindness. Those things. His patience. His forbearance. It's meant to lead you to repentance. But, Paul goes on to say, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Impenitent. You know another word for that? Unrepentant. Because of your unrepentant heart. Because of your hard heart. Listen to me. We live in a very dangerous place, Christians. A place and space where we can worship God and lift our voices and celebrate Him freely, without fear without worry, without concern. But one of my great worries is this, is with that freedom comes complacency, comes flippancy, comes a handling and a worship of God, a celebration of God that is absent of actually what he calls us to first as we enter into his presence, and that is this, repentance. That his kindness has been presumed upon. His patience, the things that we have enjoyed have been presumed upon. They're ours. We've earned them. And God goes, oh no. It's my kindness that I've given those things to you. And that kindness is meant to lead you somewhere. And that somewhere is this, repentance. The place of repentance. You see, if we worship God... And our worship of God does not cause us to repent. We've missed God himself to experience God and experience his glory and not to leave us in a deep place of re repentance is to miss God. Um, Monday, what's Monday? No, church, you're in church, okay? It's Reformation Day, all right? Yeah, it's Reformation Day. Martin Luther right? 505 years ago, nailing the 95 theses, right? Not 95 statements, if you will, to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Um, the very first statement, right? And, and we could talk about the Reformation and the trajectory. That's, I, we're, all, we're, all, we're all kind of sitting in, in, the, in the shadow of that, and that. The very first statement was this, the very one he nailed to that door, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole life? Was Luther being a little extreme? Not at all. 
and here's why I think some would even say he's being a little extreme, is because how you think about repentance. And by the way, repentance is going to be the theme this week and next week, so make sure to get part two next week. Um, He's not being extreme because he understands that in repentance, that is the gateway to joy. That is the doorway to actually understanding grace. It is actually the place by which you find what Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, life and life to the full. That is through the doorway of repentance. I love Keller in kind of examining Luther's thought here. He says, on the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never be making much progress. But of course, that wasn't Luther's point at all, he says. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Did you get that? How do we make progress in the Christian life? Repentance. Indeed, pervasive, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. You want to be a deep follower of Jesus Christ? Here is what your life and my life is going to be marked by, repentance. And next week, we're going to look at what repentance actually looks like, what it, what it actually means and how it's played out. But, but this morning, what I want to leave you with is hopefully a picture of Israel who came without repentance in God's response to that. Who can stand? No one can. God, you need to save us. That's repentance. Repentance is the right response in coming into the presence of God. Repentance is the reorientation by the Holy Spirit of our hearts unto God. And it will always lead to joy. I think some of you have this false belief about repentance that it's just like God's just so angry at you and he's like, just repent, repent, repent. And it's like this hammer. Remember Romans 2, it's his kindness that leads you where? To his anger? What a bait and switch. Let me tell you, our God does not do a bait and switch. It's his kindness that leads you to, his, to repentance so that you continue to know his kindness, his love, and his grace. But some of you, because you haven't found yourself in that place of repentance, you don't know his love. You don't know the fullness of joy. You don't know that John 10, 10 full life. Church, may we become really good at being a people who collectively, individually, corporately are really good at repentance. Repenting. And it's not just saying I'm sorry, but repentance is a reorientation. It's God reorient my whole life around you. That's what he was asking from Israel. Come before me. Remember who I am. I'm a God who personally involves myself in your life to redeem you. So we're going to take communion. Hosts, ushers, you can come forward. It would be really unwise for us (laughs) to talk about repentance and not practice it in this space and in this place. And this is one of the things I love about us switching to doing communion every week is that this gives us time. This gives us that space and that place for the Holy Spirit to move uniquely on our lives. And here's what I want a prayer, the prayer to be from everyone in this room. Holy Spirit, where is my life out of line with the Father? Where is my life not congruous with his will? Help me, Lord. Reorient my life around you. Believer, that's your prayer. Unbeliever, someone in here who's maybe not walking with Jesus. Here's possibly what the Holy Spirit is quickening on your heart. Jesus, 
save me. Save me from my self-effort, from my striving, from me trying to mount up and add up. Listen, our Bible is very clear that there's no level of good works that can save you. There's no level of morality. There's no level of behavior modification that can save you. There's only one way of salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And let me tell you, when you put your faith in him, you want to talk about joy, you'll get joy. When you talk about life and freedom and peace, you receive all of that in Christ. Literally, he says he clothes you with his righteousness. With his goodness, he clothes you. How incredible. And so for some of you, that's your prayer this morning. And so our hosts are going to lead us. We'll take the, the bread and the juice together. But in these moments, let's seek the Lord. Let's repent, church. Let's come before him with open hands and open hearts. Father, lead us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.